Well, good morning. Um, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy uh, for um, me to worship with you. I was, over this past weekend, I was with another church and community just uh, um, preaching, but uh, again, I'm, I'm always so thrilled to be with you guys every Sunday. Uh, so thank you for being here. Let's continue our worship uh, by opening up our Bibles or our apps to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, uh, so you can search for that on your app as well. Uh, if you don't have either of those, uh, the scripture passage is going to go up on the uh, PowerPoint for you guys to follow along. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark was a very close companion of Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples. Peter was one of the uh, disciples in the inner circle of Jesus, and so he uh, uh, is writing for uh, Peter's account of Jesus' ministry. And stylistically, Mark is known to just kind of get right to the point, and so I hope that uh, I could do the same today uh, through this passage. So let's give our full attention as I read this amazing passage for us, starting at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, uh, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we, will never, we, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Amen. So last week we saw an amazing picture of, of Christ's compassion and healing of a leper. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel because uh, not only does Jesus use his words, he actually touches a leper, uh, which is uh, forbidden uh, in the tradition of the Jewish law because uh, Jesus would be deemed unclean if he did. But yet we see Jesus in his deep love for this man, he touches this leper, and cleanses him. And we see here a foreshadow of the gospel where uh, the leper uh, is trading places with Jesus Christ. Instead of Jesus being contaminated by this leper, the leper catches Christ's holiness and is cleansed. Another exchange happens where this leper, who was an outcast, was on the outskirts, unable to worship, is now included, reintegrated into their community. And what is, what is Jesus left with? He's outcasted in the desolate place. Uh, it's a beautiful exchange that we see between Jesus, God's son, and this leper who was a sinner. Today, we're going to see another miraculous healing of a paralytic. Jesus is back home. His home base was in Capernaum, and the house that he was probably most likely at was at Peter and Andrew's home. And his ministry, his ministry consisted of preaching the gospel and healing those individuals. And so the word of Jesus was spreading all around the region. Wherever he went, he was a master teacher and healer. And so people would gather 
Right? He, had a, he had a great following of individuals wanting to hear his preaching and to experience miracles. But there's something I want us to notice here, right? Because this is a great evangelistic opportunity. This is a great opportunity for people to convert and to confess their faith in Jesus Christ and experience transformation, right? There's multitudes here, but yet only one, only one leaves this place transformed, changed forever. Why is this? Why when everyone is there hearing the same Jesus, knowing who he is, hearing him make these declarations, why is only one individual changed and transformed? What I want us to do today is look at three responses to Jesus Christ. Three different groups who see, see, who hear, see, and experience Jesus, but only one will experience healing, forgiveness, and transformation. So first, I want to look at the crowd. I want to look at the crowd. Secondly, I want to look at the paralytic and his friends. And lastly, I want to look at the scribes and look at their response to the same Jesus. So first, the crowd. In the Gospel of Mark, a crowd plays a very important role. Uh, Mark mentions them about 40 times before getting to chapter 10. Uh, See, Jesus' reputation and popularity rose very quickly, and people wanted to hear him teach. They were there at Peter's house to hear Jesus preach. So for Jesus, the crowd was the object of his compassion. He would heal them. He would feed them. uh, He would have compassion on them. Verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So although uh, the crowd was Jesus' object of compassion, uh, how I like to think of the crowd in the way that Mark describes them is like the paparazzi or TMZ. And if you don't know what TMZ is, don't worry about it. Uh, You're not missing out. But what their job is to go around um, to, to celebrities, athletes, to, to like catch them, uh, you know, take pictures of uh, you know, scandalous pictures or to catch news from them, right? That was their job. A bit of a nuisance. The crowd was like the paparazzi or the TMZ. Uh, ca- crowds would gather just to hear Jesus preach. But if we look at the Gospel of Mark, not once... Does Mark describe the crowd as repenting and believing in Jesus? They were just there uh, to catch a show, to hear Jesus preach. Because what was the gospel that Jesus was preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sinful ways and trust in me as your Savior. Not once in the gospel does the crowd turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. There is no repentance. So if we take a closer look at the behavior of the crowd, many of them, as Jesus' teachings intensified, they would actually leave Jesus. This is too hard. At the moment of inconvenience or an uncomfortable teaching, they would actually leave Jesus. They're very fickle followers. The most common news for the crowd in the Gospel of Mark is that they were an obstacle for others to get to Jesus Christ, as we have seen in our passage today. They're an obstacle. They're a nuisance. We live in a culture where followership is everything. Instagram, Twitter. Oh, how many followers do you have? I follow many athletes and celebrities on Instagram. And it actually costs me nothing. I just click a button and I follow them. And if they stop posting or if they do something that's weird, I unfollow them. It's very simple. It's a very casual Followership. 
I see the, the crowd followed Jesus around, but they didn't really follow him. They didn't follow him. They didn't give their lives to him. They were temperamental and they were self-interested. See, the crowd sat under the best preaching ever in the history of the world. You guys know that? They sat under the best preacher in the world. And yet, they are, they are listening and they're still unchanged, untransformed. Like for, for me as a preacher, that's a little bit comforting. To know that even Jesus, the best preacher, right, was sometimes ineffective. And it wasn't because of the preaching. It was actually the hearts of the crowd. So what does this teach us? Uh, this is a very important truth that I, I want us to listen very carefully. You can know the gospel, but still not be changed by it. See, the crowd knew the gospel. They met Jesus Christ. But that still, they're, they're unchanged. They're unrepentant. See, faith isn't simply a mental assent to a list of propositional truths. That's not what faith is. Just believing the claims of Jesus or just knowing the claims of Jesus Christ. But faith calls one to respond and act on these propositional truths. See, there's a difference. See, the gospel has a list of propositional truths. We can know them. We can articulate them. But if we do not act upon them, actively trust and believe in it, actually will leave us unchanged, unaffected by them. And this was the crowd. So you can be intellectually stimulated by the gospel, but still experience no change and no transformation in your life. That's the truth. The crowd teaches us that. Let me say this one, one more time. You can know the right proposition or truth of the gospel but without the right practices, we'll be unaffected and unchanged. See, many of us here, we know what the gospel is. You can articulate it yourself. You even know the complex doctrines of how one, how one becomes saved. You know words like propitiation, justification, sanctification, right? substitutionary atonement. You know these terms, right? You know them. You can explain it to others. But yet, we don't experience true freedom. We're not selfless. We're not selflessly loving others. There's no joy and contentment. And we, have, we are not transformed. This is why knowledge by itself puffs up. It, it just makes us arrogant. It just fills us with, we, we, we can spit knowledge, but we don't actually live in its reality. See, this is a challenge. This is what I've noticed in myself. And this is what I've noticed in our community here. There is a dichotomy between our confessional theology and our functional theology. Our confessional theology is, yes, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Functional theology is that we live as if we are the Savior. You guys understand that there is a, a dichotomy, a contrast between what we confess and actually how we live our lives. See, we confess Jesus to be our Savior, yet we try and save our, ourselves through our works and good deeds. Right? We want to validate our own worth and significance through our achievements, credentials, and abilities. We confess Jesus to be Lord, yet right, we call all the shots. We make all the decisions. And as soon as faith in Jesus inconveniences us, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, it causes us suffering, right? we ask Jesus to take the back seat. Let me take the steering wheel back. And that's many of us today. 
See, the gospel isn't just neutral facts or information. It calls us to act upon the truth of Jesus Christ. See, we can't hear the claims of Jesus and be nonchalant about, about them. Either we decide that they are false, that he's a phony, and we reject Christ and disobey, or we believe that he is truly the Son of God, the one that can forgive sins and respond in faith. Those are the two options. See, knowledge does not equal faith because even the demons know who Jesus is. They have good theology, but yet they fail to worship God. So then what does faith look like? I want us to take a look at the second group, the paralytic and friends. Verse 3, and, then they, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So now we are introduced to these four men and, and a paralytic. We aren't given too much information about them. All we know is that they believed something about Jesus. We don't know their theology. We don't know the depth of their knowledge of Christ. All we know is that these friends knew that if they take this paralytic to Jesus, Jesus can do something about it. And what's amazing about these friends is that they didn't let these obstacles get in the way. Right? First of all, they're carrying this, this grown man. right? And then they see the crowd, and, and they could have easily turned back. Right? But no, uh, they went up to the roof, and they tore through the roof. So in a, a typical home in Palestine, was uh, the roof was made with thatch and mud. So it, it's something that you can actually dig up and, and create an opening. And, and we see these friends doing something that is so disrespectful in this culture, right? Damaging property. Like, like P. Mike, we, we complain about people sleeping in, uh, during our sermons as a distraction. Right? What if someone was in the roof, right, lifting up the panels and trying to, li- like, lower someone down, Right? Like, you got to put yourself in, in, in this uh, scenario, right? Think about the noise. Think about uh, the debris falling from the ceiling, the mess. Right? Culturally, this was very disrespectful, what these, what these friends were doing. But yet, this was an amazing act of faith. It's astonishing. Carrying their friend. They didn't turn back. They weren't discouraged by the crowd. And they made a way to get to Jesus even if it was costly, even if it was culturally disrespectful. They damaged Peter's property. They weren't content with simply knowing and getting news about Jesus. They wanted to experience Jesus. What we see here is a profound and powerful expression of faith. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So this is the first time Mark uses the word faith. Faith, demonstrated by these four friends, is an active trust in Jesus. Again, we don't know their theology. All we know is what they did with the very little that they knew about Jesus. They acted upon their knowledge of Christ. James Edward, in his commentary, this is what he says. This is how he describes faith. An active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. I love it. I think this is a very good definition of what faith calls us to do. It is not a passive thing. 
It's an active thing. It calls us to exercise something and do something with this propositional truth of who Jesus Christ is. See, Marx wants his audience to know, and he wants us to know, that faith isn't just mental assent, a belief of a list of proposition, but an active trust in the sufficiency of Christ. And this is what the four friends teach us. But then Jesus, seeing their faith, says something so alarming and so scandalous. What does he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was a paralytic, I'm not going to lie, I'll, I'll be very disappointed because right? I hate to go to a restaurant and order steak, but instead the, the person gives me a, a salad. Right? Did Jesus get the order wrong here? The paralytic came to get healed. He, he didn't come to get his sins forgiven. Right? This is like a horrible bait and switch. Right? The friends, too, probably thought, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to heal. But yet Jesus says something so alarming and scandalous. Son, your sins are forgiven. Why does he say this? So is Jesus suggesting to this paralytic that that he did something wrong in order for him to be paralyzed? Is that his suggestion? Now, if we look in the other Gospels and other accounts where Jesus is encountering someone that is blind, we know that not all disease or ailments is a result of sin. So I don't think the, the author is giving us that option, that Jesus is just calling out this man's specific sin that made him paralyzed. And so I want us to save us from that, a misunderstanding. What Jesus is doing here, he's saying sin is the real problem. Sin is a real culprit of all pain, suffering, and disease. The greater problem than this man's paralysis, physical paralysis, is his spiritual paralysis, the inability to be with God, the inability to save himself. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why Jesus declares this man as forgiven. Sin needs to be dealt with in order for one to experience true healing and salvation. See, the paralytic got more than what he came for. He came for physical healing, but experienced spiritual renewal. Even the smallest faith placed in a sufficient Savior can save a life. And these four friends... And the paralytic teaches us what this actually looks like, an active trust in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, faith is meant to be exercised. It's called, it calls us to action. And for these friends, it was to carry their friend, climb up to the roof, dig up the roof, and lower their friend to Jesus. Again, all they knew is that Jesus can do something, so they did something about it. See, for many of us, faith in God, our faith hasn't grown because we haven't actually taken any steps of faith to live and act upon the truth, truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, our faith calls us to act, to not just believe that Jesus can, but live our lives as if he can really transform and change us. Faith is exercised when we actively trust in the sufficiency of Christ for all things. But this act of forgiveness triggers another response by the last group, the third group. And I want us to look at the scribe and and their response to Jesus. Verse 6, Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins 
but God alone. Now, scribes were experts of the law. Uh, They knew that only God can actually pardon and forgive sins. And so what Jesus does here is blasphemy because Jesus is saying, I am God. And so blaspheming was punishable by death, uh, stoning. Uh, That's how they would actually put someone to death uh, for blaspheming. And they are absolutely right theologically. Only God can forgive sins. They only fail to see that Jesus was God. So we can't blame them because there's nothing in the Old Testament that tells us that the Messiah had the ability to forgive sins. Yes, to heal. Yes, to preach. Right? Yes, to heal lepers, to make the blind see. Yeah, all of those things. But the Old Testament doesn't actually prophesy of the Messiah having the ability to forgive sins. So, you know, I, 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 we can't blame them for their astonishment and their reaction here and their response. What Jesus said was scandalous and controversial. But knowing what they were thinking, Jesus responds to them. Verse 8. And and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which is easier? Obviously, to say your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way to verify if that actually happened or not. It would be crazier for Jesus to actually heal this man from his paralysis. right? So it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. But what does Jesus say next? Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed, glorifying God, saying, we never, we saw anything like this. See, he verified his authority to forgive sins by this act of healing. He's trying to tell the scribes, yeah, I'm God. I'm God. I can, for, I can forgive sins and I can heal. He tells us the paralytic to rise, take up his bed and walk. This is the mic drop moment here for Jesus. He's proven it. He's proven it. That he is God. He just proved that he had the authority to forgive sins by healing this paralytic. See, Jesus at this moment is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy that the lame will share and the blind will share in the joy of coming salvation. But even with the demonstration of this miracle, the scribes do not experience the grace of Christ, his forgiveness. And transformation. So what the scribes tell us and teach us is that the greater problem than physical disease and physical paralysis is that spiritual paralysis is even greater of a problem. And we see this in the scribe. They were spiritually paralyzed. They didn't see their own need for healing and forgiveness because they were self-confident and self-righteous. Let me say that one more time. The scribes didn't think that they needed healing. They were self-righteous. They thought they were okay. They didn't need to be saved. See, they were experts of the law. They knew who God was, but they failed to see their own sinful depravity. See, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest, if not the greatest obstacle for us to experience the grace of God, it is self righteousness is to think that we are good in ourselves is to be self-confident 
See, the religious of Jesus' day failed to see Jesus as their Savior because they believed they didn't need saving. And this is the challenge for many of us here, sitting in these seats today, because you guys are successful. You guys are self-sufficient. You guys have beautiful families. You have good jobs. You're comfortable. You're never in want. We have a good life. We're, we do good things. And so we develop a false sense of security on a relative model of, of morality. Right? We base our goodness on a relative standard, relative holiness, relative goodness. Right? This is what the scribes did. They created their own system that they can abide by and thought that they were good, that their goodness can save them. And what it did was created a false sense of security. Instead of absolute holiness, absolute goodness, they, was, they were satisfied with relative goodness. Now, let me share an example of this. You know, people uh, at this church say, hey, DC, you're, you're good at basketball. You're good at basketball. Oh, thank you. But it's never just left at that. You're good for a 30-year-old. Uh, you're good for a, a, a person that has three children, right? You're good for an old guy. Or you're good for a Korean, right? Relative goodness. That's what relative goodness is. Oh, you're good for a 30-year-old. Well, I don't know if that's a compliment, right? But put, put, me in, in, put me in front of the Lakers, the NBA. Absolute professionals. I will not be able to hang. What are you basing, what's the basis of your goodness and morality and righteousness? If it is to compare yourself to other people, that is a very dangerous game. It is so dangerous because you should always be able to find someone that you're better than, right? You should be able to find someone that you're better than. So we create these systems of self-righteousness and self-justification, but that's dangerous. Based on what? Before a holy, perfect, absolutely holy, perfect, good God, who are we? Just look at the laws. Can you go one day and just saying, yes, I actually did not covet. I wasn't jealous. I was not lustful. I didn't think myself better than others. I actually loved my neighbors as myself. Can you, can you, can you even go a day or give yourself even an hour? No, absolutely not. We are sinful throughout. He describes based their morality on a system that they created, failing to see that God required absolute perfection and holiness. Please don't fool yourself in thinking that you are good and righteous by comparing yourself to others. See, the, the scribes failed to see their own spiritual paralysis and weren't able to experience healing and forgiveness. The last thing that we see is something, again, very beautiful and amazing, an act of faith. Jesus tells this man to get up, take up his bed, and walk out. And what does he do? He obeys. He gets up. He's healed. He takes his mat. And everyone is amazed at this act. Who are we? How will we respond to the claims of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who has the authority to forgive sins? Who are we in this narrative? How will we respond to Jesus Christ? Will you respond like the crowd? 
who's passive, who are just passive observers, learning, hearing, watching Jesus, but never actively trusting in his sufficiency as a savior? Are you fine with just doing your religious duty on Sundays and living the rest of your life throughout the week on your own terms? Are we going to, at this first sign of inconvenience, of discomfort, of pain and suffering because of our faith, are we going to turn our backs on Jesus? Are we going to take, again, our ownership of our own lives and do things our way? Do we simply know the propositional truths of the gospel, or are we actually practicing and living in its realities? Or will we respond like the scribes? Self-sufficient, self-satisfied, self-righteous, confident in ourselves, not needing to be saved. You think Jesus is for the really bad people, right? And so we don't turn to him, we don't repent, we don't seek healing, forgiveness, and grace from him. Are we spiritually uh, paralyzed and we just don't know it? Or will we respond to Jesus like the friends of the paralytic by actively trusting in him, surrendering our lives, doing all that we can to get people to Jesus because we know that if we can get someone to Jesus, Jesus can actually do something for them to forgive their sins. Will we act on what we believe? Let me apply this for us very simply. The direct application of this message. Let's try and live our lives as if we are truly forgiven of our debts. I just, just try the social experiment. Because right? it's true, we just don't sometimes live in it. God has pardoned your sin, your eternal debt, wiped clean. That's the truth. That's the propositional truth of the gospel. Try and actually live in light of that reality. I, I'm just so curious if, if your life will be filled with so much joy, gratitude, contentment, Rest, peace, because you have nothing else to prove. Christ has accomplished your salvation on your behalf. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. We don't have to carry the baggage around with us. God doesn't want us to prove anything because he's proven it all through Jesus. Live as if that's true. I wonder how your life will change. Try to live in it. God, I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. I'm approved 100% because of what Christ has done. I wonder what our lives will look like if we actually lived it out. Another act of faith is prayer. Prayer is an act of faith. Whatever cares and concerns you have, take it before God in prayer. That is act of faith. And I have to, again, shamelessly plug February 24th, why I believe. Talk about an opportunity to bring your friend to carry your friend so they can hear the gospel. Your, your confidence is not in your ability to articulate the gospel, to, to like try to change. No, that's Jesus' job. All we need to do is get them to Jesus. February 24th, 5 p.m., this is an opportunity to be a friend, to exercise your faith and to believe for someone else. Right? These four friends believed for this paralytic. There is a friend, there's someone that God has placed in our lives that they need us to believe for them. And we can actually invite them to this event. Someone in the legal field, someone in the mental health field, someone in the science field, they're going to share their testimony. Like no pressure to those individuals because it's not up to you. 
It's the gospel that's going to change them. It is Jesus that's going to change them. All we need to do is get them there. Who is that in your life today? It's a coworker. It's a friend. It's a classmate. It's a family member. It's not on Sunday. It's not churchy. It's a great opportunity. Consider that, please. Apply, exercise your faith and invite someone to that day, to that amazing day where we're going to hear from our brothers and our sister. See, the friends of the paralytic is a great example of faith and love, true friendship. But in Christ, we have a greater friend, don't we? We have a greater friend. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. See, the friends of the paralytic carry their friend to Jesus. It was heavy, probably uncomfortable. Jesus Christ, what did he do? He carried our sins. He carried that cross. He bore the wrath of God's judgment for us. The friends tore roof, tore, the, tore through the roof. What did Jesus do? He tore the veil. The very obstacle from us gaining access to God, Jesus himself tore that down, giving us access, fellowship, communion with God. See, his forgiveness wasn't just granted by words, but by his very body and his blood. We are now forgiven, redeemed, and loved. And Jesus now calls us to actively trust in him, to go to him over and over again, desperate for his grace. Brothers and sisters, let's exercise our faith right now and go to him in prayer. Let's pray.